and it was 2.47 a.m. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I'm relieved that I have my notes, and uh, we're off to a good start. So as I was preparing for this exhortation, I realized that Pastor Paul and I have known each other for 50 years, half a century. He reminded me recently that he had witnessed to me the summer of 1973. I had just graduated from West Torrance High School. I don't remember that encounter as this was the summer I discovered beach volleyball. I was not interested in what he had to say about Christ. But 35 years later, I landed here at Branch, and I know that over those 35 years, Pastor Paul, as well as others, were praying for my salvation. So the moral of the story is, keep praying for our friends and family who have not, not bowed the knee to Christ. So here we are, almost halfway through Pastor Paul's sabbatical, and Branch of Hope, as my dad would say, is still plugging away, right? Um, I miss our pastor's cheerful disposition, his sense of humor, uh, his warmth, and his in-depth preaching. Yet, as he has said from the pulpit many times, it's a sign of a healthy church to thrive even when the main man is absent. So as important as this pastor, as our pastor is to this church, it's Christ and not Pastor Paul that is the rock that we lean on. And as much as we miss his teaching and his presence, he considers it his responsibility, I know, to mold us into a strong body so that in his absence, whenever that occurs, we continue to thrive as a congregation. So in the meantime, during his sabbatical, we've had some very capable speakers. Pastor Pan, what a great story he is. Mark Schroeder, Dustin Carson. We're blessed to have these people step in. And my fellow elders have preceded me, preceded me in giving solid messages. Aaron Davies preached on R&R, not rest and relaxation, but repentance and restoration. He helped us understand what biblical repentance, forgiveness, and restoration are supposed to look like. Then we had Elder Tracy Catron. He did an excellent work in presenting the ABCs of the Christian faith. Always beholding Christ, as well as showing us how the fear of the Lord and the delight of the Lord work together. Then we were blessed with Michael Yu, Elder Michael Yu, who followed with a message on YATC, You Are the Christ. And he renewed and he reviewed who Christ was to his disciples, who Christ is to us, and how we are to live our lives accordingly. So today we explore T-O-O-F, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith as well as the joy and the blessings that come with this obedience that flows from Christ and faith in Christ. So for context, I'll read Romans 1, 1 through 5. Now hear the name of the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the body, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, 
Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this gift of this day you've given us, this, this Sabbath day of rest, Father, to uh, come to you and rest from our work and to worship you, Father. Uh, we just pray that uh, this would be a, a time of blessing and that I pray, Father, that uh, this word would be um, correct, but the words that come out of my mouth would be correct and edifying to the body of Christ, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So obedience, wow, that word steers, stirs fear in the hearts of many these days. Our Western culture celebrates autonomy, self-definition, and freedom from any and all boundaries, and self-authentication. Peter Jones, a, a Christian author and apologist, summarized our current pagan mindset as follows. The unlimited fulfillment of desires that results in the idolatry of the here and now. I want to say that again. The unlimited fulfillment of desires that results in the idolatry of the here and now. So this highlights this intense resurgence of a lack of boundaries, the limitless fulfillment of immediate desires, and the focus on the autonomous self. And the result, friends, of this mindset is tragic. It results in moral confusion, lack of purpose, denial of objective truth, and emptiness. A quote from Hosea 4.10, They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord. Philippians 3.19 reads, Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So, in this context, obedience, the word, can be a trigger word, right? It's often associated with the idea of authoritarianism, of having someone else's viewpoint shoved down our throat so that we are coerced to adhere to a strict set of norms. These norms are viewed as oppressive and restrictive and obstacles to people who want to forge their own path. In fact, for many, the call to obey is a, a good excuse to just do the opposite, as this Rebellion authenticates our own self-identity. Some Christians see obedience as the opposite of grace, that by obeying Jesus, you're working to earn your way into heaven. In other words, seeking to obey God's commands propels one into a works-based righteousness. This is in spite of the fact that Jesus tells us explicitly that if we love him, we're to keep his commandments. The idea of obedience can also be framed as spiritually abusive, and has been used such since it has been used against people in spiritual context. We think of the idea of drinking the Kool-Aid. Remember that? Um, uh, in reference to the people in Jonestown, Guyana, who, who drank arsenic-laced Kool-Aid in obedience to their leader, Jim Jones. But, friends, the mistake here is obvious. Conflating obedience to an authority figure, whether it's a person, a movie star, a guru, an athlete, an academic, or a scientist... Conflating that obedience with an obedience to an authority that truly merits such obedience, namely Jesus. Now, as we have heard from Pastor Paul on many Sundays, we all obey some kind of authority. Someone or something is on the throne of our decision-making process. We all have a reference point, a starting point that defines who we are, 
what we believe and how we live, as Francis Schaeffer would say, whether it's our traditions, our feelings, our reason, our faith in faith itself, science, we are all obedient to some basic underlying principle, as Dr. Eddy would say, a set of controlled beliefs that drive our thoughts, words, and deeds. Therefore, in a sense, as R.C. Sproul says, we are all theologians, whether we acknowledge this fact or not, since all of us have some opinion about God, whether he exists or not, and who he ultimately is, and who is the captain of our own ship. We read in the Psalms, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now this is not a denial of the intellectual brilliance of the person who rejects God, since by the world standards, that person may be a genius. However, the Bible contends that this person is oblivious to the true nature of reality, that there is an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, personal God who created the universe out of nothing and made human beings in his image. To be called a fool, then, is a moral judgment, since that person fails to recognize God's sovereignty over all. He suppresses the truth, and he suppresses the fact that God has lovingly laid out his demands for us as his creatures to obey and submit to. So, in exploring the obedience of faith, I want to present that instead of it being an oppressive burden that we carry around like a 100-pound bag of sand on our backs. The obedience of faith results in freedom, thankfulness, trust, and manifold blessings. It's a good thing and a joyful thing to possess a living faith that results in trust and obedience in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Christians, we know we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, based on God's gracious election of us in eternity past. This faith in the person and work of Christ, upon regeneration, immediately calls us to obey Christ and his commands. He is now our Lord and Savior. We can also say that this is the obedience that flows from faith or is a natural fruit of faith. In fact, because we have received grace from Christ the obedience of faith will be brought about for the sake of his name through all the nations, that God's name would be glorified through our obedience. So point number one, it's important that we get the sequence of regeneration, faith, and obedience straight. The obedience to Christ and his commands follows faith in in the personal work of Christ, which follows from regeneration by the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's take that from the other direction. Regeneration, faith, trust, and obedience. Faith is the fountain, the foundation, and the fosterer of obedience. In this redemptive act, there is an exchange of masters, a relinquishing of our old enslavement to sin for a new obedience of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. We preach the obedience of faith. Men obey not God until they believe him. We preach faith in order that men may be brought to obedience. Obedience is found in the obedience of the mind, the understanding, and the heart. And this is expressed in believing the teaching of Christ, trusting in his work, 
and resting in his salvation. Faith is the morning star of obedience. So, we're regenerated and we're granted faith, which results in trusting in Jesus, relying on his work on the cross for our salvation. We subsequently have the desire to obey his commands, showing our love, honor, and respect for him through our obedience to his commands. So obedience, this is upside down right here, based on the secular worldview. Obedience is actually a gift from God. That's a strange way to view things from a normal worldly perspective, isn't it? He loves us. He regenerates us. He grants us faith. And he gives us, through this faith, the wonderful gift of obedience. Obedience is a necessary fruit of faith. One of the marks of a Christian is to trust and obey God's commands. John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Christ is clear on this. I mean, it's, it's, it couldn't be any clearer. Obedience to his commands and submission to his authority is a requirement. It's a definitive mark of a Christian. Furthermore, if we believe Christ, trust in Christ, rest in Christ, abide in Christ... We're going to bear good fruit. Michael, you made that point in his exhortation that obedience brings blessing. We bear good fruit in our lives and relationships through the obedience of faith, the obedience that flows from faith. John 15, 5 states, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is the genuine, true vine. We draw our nourishment from him, and therefore, we can bear fruit. Any lack of fruit is a failure to be obedient to his commands. The nutrients flow freely from the vine, Christ, from Christ to the branches, us. As we steadfastly abide in him, the fruit born is indeed genuinely good. Scripture makes it clear that we have no nutrients of our own to bear good fruit. Therefore, apart from Jesus, as he said, we can do nothing that has any spiritual value whatsoever. Apart from nourishment from Christ, the vine, we cannot obey his commandments. The obedience of faith also flows from a living faith. James 2.26 for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So a living faith that has a heartfelt desire to do the right thing, which has as its foundation God's laws and commandments. In fact, because we have received grace from, sorry, excuse me. To summarize, so. To summarize point number one, obedience flows from faith, is a gift from God, and is dependent on the vine Jesus who nourishes us and empowers us to obey his loving commands. So here's our second point. This obedience is cheerful, it's joyful, and satisfying to the soul that desires to please God. It springs from a principle within, not a compulsion without. 
Not only should we obey Christ and his commands, our love of Christ constrains us to do so. Our affections are then ordered toward obedience. We are pleased, happy, and content to trust and obey. We can truly lead a spirit-filled life through the obedience of faith. Again, Spurgeon states, I preach the obedience of a child, not the obedience of a slave. The obedience of love, not of terror. The obedience of faith, not of dread. Obedience flows from our faith in the Son of God who loved us so much he laid down his life for us. Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we accept the Lord Jesus by faith, and he teaches us obedience and creates it in us through his spirit that lives within us. The more faith we have in Christ, his person and work, the more obedience we will manifest. He bids, we obey. We must be obedient in life to him who, for our sakes, was obedient unto death on a cross. So, if we truly consider and meditate on Christ's redemptive work, his sacrifice on our behalf, the natural emotional response to Christ laying down his life for us is gratitude and joyful submission to his rule. By faith in the person and work on the cross, on his, on his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, Jesus guarantees our eternal salvation as we persevere in faith and run the race set before us. The true believer believes in God beyond all else and everything else. This is one of Pastor Paul's favorite quotes from the Bible, let God be true and every man a liar. This is a trusting, humble, and glad submission to the authority of the Son of God. And as Jesus stated, he came to abolish, not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them on behalf, on our behalf through his active obedience. Matthew eleven twenty eight thirty 30 states, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your weary souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The law if understood as a way of meriting salvation, is heavy, it's oppressive, it's impossible to obey perfectly. It becomes a yoke of slavery if we are not in Christ. Its purpose is to drive us to the cross so that we can recognize our incapacity of fulfilling his law on our own. By contrast, the yoke of Jesus, while demanding, is a perfect fit for us since it comes from one who is meek and lowly in heart. Jesus fulfilled the law's demands perfectly for his people, and his spirit empowers our grateful obedience and submission to God's laws. Faith in the person and work of Christ alone can provide rest for our weary souls. Again, Spurgeon states, the believer is no longer the helmsman of his own vessel. He's taken a pilot on board. To believe in God and to do his bidding is a great escape from the hazards of personal weakness and folly. If we do as he commands and do not seem to succeed, it's no fault of ours. Providence is God's business. Obedience is ours. 
To obey is our sole concern. What harvest will come of our sowing? We must leave with the Lord of the harvest. Our greatest risk is over when we obey. When only we obey, a thousand other cares take their flight. Think about this. I mean, when we obey, our greatest risk is over for a thousand other cares take their flight. I mean, how liberating. How freeing. Obedience, rather than being a yoke, sets one free. That's counterintuitive, isn't it? So to summarize point two, the obedience that flows from faith is liberating and joyful, and it's a perfect fit for us as fallen creatures in need of the grace of God. So point number three, recognizing authority, the right authority, the only true authority, is key to Christian obedience. So let's look at Luke uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. One of my favorite parts of Scripture, the centurion and Jesus and their encounter. This is an example of obedience and trust that flows from faith in the words of Jesus. So Luke 7, 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, Don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. So when Christ says he's amazed at someone or something, especially one's faith, we need to pay attention. The centurion is a Roman commander of a hundred or more troops. He's a Gentile, yet he is loved and respected by the Jews. Now, why this unusual respect for a Gentile on the part of the Jews? Well, the soldier spent his own money to build a synagogue for the Jews. This soldier also has a sincere care and love for his servant. He knows how to love others as himself. The servant has no social standing in the community, yet the centurion pleads with Jesus to have him healed. Everyone is urging Jesus to go to the centurion, but the centurion says, Man, I'm not worthy to receive you under my roof, Lord. He simultaneously pleads for help from Jesus because he trusts that Jesus is the prophet everyone says he is. Yet, in the same sense, the centurion is not demanding in his attitude, is he? He's humble. Just say the word. The centurion pleads in trust and faith. Jesus heals by his word because he has authority to do so, and the centurion trusts in that authority. He trusts that Jesus is who he says he is, and can do what he says he can do. By divine fiat, simply by his verbal command, Christ brings about his Father's will. 
calling it into being by the power of his voice. John Calvin puts it this way. The centurion illustrates his faith by a comparison taken from his own profession and is confident that Christ can easily command away the distemper as he can command any of his soldiers. Can as easily send an angel with commission to cure this servant of his as he can send a soldier on an errand. Christ has sovereign power over all the creatures and their actions and can change the course of nature as he pleases. He can rectify his disorders and repair its decays in human bodies for all power is given over to him. So Christ is amazed at the centurion's faith. He states that he had not found such great faith, not in Israel. The centurion knew trust and obedience. Christ will have those that follow him to observe and take notice of the great examples of faith and obedience that are sometimes set before them. The centurion trusts and obeys. As the centurion walked by faith, in the words of Jesus, we walk by faith, not by sight, and this faith in Christ works obedience in our minds, in our hearts. It's a joy and an honor and a pleasure to, from a sincere heart committed to the Lord, obey Christ's loving commands. So to summarize our third point, we trust and obey Christ as a supreme authority, Him and only Him. Only trusting in His authority, the Son of God, can we flourish in obedience to the true prophet, priest, and king. So our fourth point, the obedience of faith leads to that feeling we all long for, that peace that surpasses all understanding. Yes, the Apostle Paul states that being justified by faith, we have peace with God. I mean, friends, we long for peace. Peace with our spouse, peace with our families, peace in the world. Ultimately, though, God is the most important being we need to have peace with. And faith is a conduit that brings us into a state of peace. Faith is the empty hand that receives Christ as Lord and Savior and his sacrifice on our behalf on the cross. So before regeneration or rebirth, we are at enmity with God. God is holy. We are not. We have transgressed and continue to transgress against his holy law. There is a breach between us and the Creator. Spurgeon again says, we kick against his providence. We rebel against his commands. We resist his Holy Spirit. In a word, we disobey. Before we can have peace in our hearts, though, we need to be in an objective state of peace with God. This comes by grace, through faith in Christ, by the hearing of the word preached and the work of the Spirit in our hearts. Romans 5.1 states, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our allegiance has shifted from the world to Christ. Before regeneration, we agreed with the secular world system and its control of the culture, which is at odds with God. But now, we're at peace with God and at war with the world. There's been an exchange there's an exchange of masters, a relinquishing of our old enslavement to sin for a new obedience, for a new obedience of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can now obey with joy and confidence 
because we trust in Christ, the Son of God, who laid down his life for his people. The regenerate person can now feel at peace with God because of his objective standing as being adopted as a son or daughter of God through faith in Christ. As we grow in the obedience of faith, the the peace of Christ and the Holy Spirit can reign in our hearts in any situation. It's challenging, but it can. Matthew Henry has this to say, there's more in this peace than barely a cessation of enmity. There's friendship and loving kindness. For God is either the worst enemy or the best friend. Christ has called his disciples his friends, and surely a man needs no more to make him happy as to have God his friend. God is our friend. He's our authority, and we gladly trust and obey him. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Subjective peace, lasting tranquility that surpasses all understanding is a result of the objective peace that we now have with God. Our sins are forgiven. As Jason said, removed as far as the east is from the west. We have a new Lord and Master that we follow and trust in the obedience that flows from that is born out of faith. Now, friends, because we have objective peace with God, we will not have peace with the world. We should never forget that God's gracious act in choosing us in eternity past as one of his adopted sons and daughters. We should never forget that fact. Yet we also are reminded that his choice guarantees us hardship being the world's hatred for believers. Christ has warned us that the world will hate us, and it hated him, and we should not surprised by this. The Greek word cosmos, translated as world, does not refer to the created order, but rather the system of rebellion that defies God, the system of thought that does not thank God for his creation, nor honor him for who he is. This world system actively suppresses the truth in unrighteousness and encourages others to do this and to engage in the similar foolish behavior. The Christian is in the world, but not of it. Despite difficulties and challenges that will be faced, we are still called to joyfully walk in submission to God's providence, no matter what the circumstances. So to summarize point four, peace that surpasses all understanding is intertwined with the obedience that is a fruit of faith in Christ Jesus. So as we close, let's take a look at Psalm 52, 8, 9, as we look at human flourishing and obedience that springs from faith. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good to the, in the presence of the godly. It's a beautiful psalm. These, the key words in this psalm are trust, thank, and wait. And there could be a sermon on each one of these words. In brief, the context of Psalm 52 is David's response to Doeg the Edomite and his betrayal. David contends that Doeg's treachery comes from his trust in the abundance of his own riches. 
and therefore Doeg seeks refuge in his own destruction. In contrast to Doeg, who, who God will uproot from the land of the living, which is in verse 7, David affirms God's steadfast love for his people and rejoices in the fact that he's like a green olive tree in the house of God. What could be better than to be a flourishing tree in the house of God? God plants his own like a green olive tree in the courts of the Lord. The olive tree bears fruit, gives shade, it's stable, it's rooted, it is sustained and manifested by the Lord himself. David affirms that in spite of the wickedness he has experienced at at the hand of Saul and Doeg, he will still trust in the Lord's steadfast love. The Lord's own obey him because they trust in his steadfast love, no matter, again, what the circumstances. The obedience of faith, secondly, creates thankfulness in their hearts, and they praise the Lord for his goodness and love. Romans 1, 20-21 states, 4, His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor God or give thanks to him. Paul cites this lack of gratitude as a core part of man's depravity. In contrast, the obedience of faith compels us to honor God and to thank him for what he has done, for he has done it. He has accomplished salvation for us through his son. The obedience of faith gives a believer patience. It's hard for me to wait. I'm very impatient. I want things done. I want them done now. So, but I'm called to wait, to wait on God. Matthew Henry puts it this way. What is it to wait on God? To wait on God is to live a life of desire towards him, delight in him, dependence on him, and devotedness to him. To wait on God is to make his will our rule, to make the will of his providence the rule of our patience, and to hear every and to bear every affliction with an eye to that patience and waiting. It's easier said than done, for sure. However, persevering in the obedience of faith, the obedience that flows from faith in the person and work of Christ empowers us to continue to walk the path set before us. In closing, the Apostle Paul begins with Romans with the obedience of faith. Well, he also wraps up his magnum opus in Romans 16, 25 through 27 with the same concept. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept for for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all nations leading to obedience of faith. Through the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. So... Friends, can there be satisfaction in not doing what we feel at the moment based on our own circumstances, personal feelings, but instead walking in God's ways, doing what we know is the objectively right thing to do? Yes, there is. Thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ that through his spirit, the obedience of faith is implanted in our hearts so that we can be salt and light to a darkened world. 
I'll close with this from Micah 6, 8, which is an excellent illustration of what the obedience of faith looks like. Looks like. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father God, again, we thank you for this day of Sabbath rest you've provided for us. We pray that we would continue to walk in the obedience of faith that flows from a true, authentic, living faith in the person and work of Christ. That through this obedience, rooted in faith in the Son of God who laid down his life for us, that all the nations would see your goodness, your steadfast love, and your wonderful providence working itself out in our lives, resulting in bringing glory to you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.